All right, if everyone could stand for the reading of God's word, please. The word this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Um, if you have a Bible, read in your Bible. If you don't, we should have these up on the screens in just a second. Yes, no, maybe so. Uh, let's see if these advance fit. No matter who you are. No? Okay. Oh, wait. Oh, going back. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, all right, so if you follow along in your own Bibles, that's great. Um, from Genesis. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. So God created mankind in his own image. In the, Im excuse me, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is the word of God. Join with me as we pray for the message. Lord God, I lift up Elder Joe to you, Lord. Strengthen him and help him to speak as you would have him speak, Lord. And Lord, especially open our hearts to your word. Let it be fertile ground where the seed of your word may grow and multiply and spread throughout our community and our families. Lord, thank you for this blessing. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name. Thank you for those prayers, Missy. So um, let me get situated here. So next week is our third anniversary. And we're still in Genesis 1. So we hope to complete Genesis in time for our 30th anniversary. <laughs> no guarantees, but we'll do our best. Um, it is good to be here again. Thank you for those prayers, Missy. Um, I, I trust that um, your hearts are now ready with the worship and the prayers that we've had to just hear something from God, not from me. Um, so we read in Genesis 1:26 for the first time, God uses a new phrase, a new way of introducing what it is he's doing. He says, let us make mankind in our image. In, this, in, in all instances, we know that God is talking to someone. He's communicating within the Godhead. But this is the first time he's saying he's including the entire Godhead in the act of creation. Not that they weren't before, but for some reason it's said differently here. And I think there's a reason for that. Our image, the image that we're created in, contains both attributes of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because of the way in which we're created, we also are creative. We also are spirit. And we also perform best as humble servants, not proud masters. So, 
It's important to remember who you are, just like Simba in The Lion King, that we are made in the image of God. Made in the image of God means that in certain ways we are like him. We're not perfect. We are imperfect copies in a sense, but we still share many of the attributes of, of, of God. Now, wouldn't it be nice to be omnipotent, all-powerful, move obstacles out of your way? Wouldn't that be great? How about being omniscient, knowing all things, knowing what your boys are doing, right? Or to be omnipresent, that would be weird, to be everywhere present at all times. Well, we didn't get those things. <laughs> those are called God's... Um, non-communicable attributes. No one but God can be those things. If anyone were, then there would not be the one true God. So those are the attributes of God which are his and his alone. But we did get other attributes from God, his communicable attributes. Because God is alive, we are alive. Because God has a personality. He's a person who is knowable. Then we also have personalities. We are persons who are individual and knowable. We have self-awareness. We have other awareness. We have creativity. We have a sense, an aesthetic sense. We were thrown off this morning because everyone was on one side of the church. We have a sense of balance, a sense of contrast, and we can appreciate those things in what we see. We have the ability to obtain knowledge. We have the ability to grow in wisdom. We have the ability to love. We can perceive justice and injustice, and we can pursue holiness. These are things that the animal kingdom cannot do and does not do. We are unique in God's creation in this way. These attributes enable us to live in community with one another, to perform the work that we just read that God has designed us to do over creation, to rule, to have dominion, to organize and, and, and direct things. That purpose that God gave us in Genesis was spoiled by the fall, but it was not revoked. We still have all the responsibilities, and we don't do a very good job with them, but we still have the things that God assigned for us to do. It is still man's place to rule wisely until that time when creation is completely remade in God's eternal kingdom, and then again, we will still have rule and dominion, but in a perfect and complete sense. These same attributes give us the capacity for a spiritual life and the potential to have fellowship with our creator. That potential can be birthed and developed during our time, during our mortal lives, and then can flourish to perfect fellowship with him in eternity for those who experience that spiritual birth. I want to take a closer look this morning at how some of those God-given attributes, those godly image in us, 
needs to be manifest in our daily lives. Self-awareness and awareness of others are essential ingredients in what I think is the dominant characteristic we see of God in Genesis 1. Throughout Genesis 1, what we see most, yes, God is making things, but the key thing there is that God is a communicator. God is communicating throughout Genesis 1. In my early days as an engineer, my specialization was in data communications. And you learn in Datacom 101 that there are four requirements for any kind of communication to occur. You must have a transmitter, a speaker, a sayer, and you must have a receiver, someone hearing or listening. You must have a common language so that whatever the content is can be understood. And you must have a protocol. The protocol is the rules for sending and receiving, for starting and stopping. Call it politeness and manners, if you will. But without them, there's just confusion even if you are speaking the same language. These four components are essential for all forms of communication. It's not just electronics. It's interesting, when you look at the story of the Tower of Babel, which occurs later in Genesis, Genesis chapter 11, all of mankind had one language. And so they were getting kind of uh, too big for their britches. And they thought with that one language and the organization that they could pull together, they could build a tower to heaven. And they started. Now, they weren't going to get there, but they were still, the attitude of their hearts was that there was nothing that they could not do. And so God confused their language. He didn't take away the, their tongues or their ears, but he confused their language. They no longer had a common language, and so it was chaos. And it caused division, and the different people scattered all over the world, and that's why we have different languages and different races and peoples today. Um, there's a funny example of this that occurred in our trip to Mexico. Pat had mentioned that we had a lot of translators with us. There were two young men in particular. Uh, one worked for the International Mission Board. Another one um, ha had some connection with Compassion. And they were great young guys, English, knew English very well, but they still spoke with a pretty heavy accent. So you have to picture us, that whole big, not that whole big gang, but the, the 20 or so sponsors who were traveling throughout that week. We'd have our meals at a restaurant, at a big long table and everyone's scattered up and down that table and there'd be conversations going on all around you and you, you couldn't hear them all but you know you'd focus in on one or two people and then you might hear something over here and you'd turn and, and participate. So at one point one group was discussing uh, the virtues of pet ownership. You know people love their pets, they love to talk about their pets and one of the translators mentioned that he had a friend who lived in an apartment where they could not have pets. So she had a cactus. Perfectly reasonable. But someone just hearing the edge of that conversation heard this. I have a friend who lives in an apartment where they can't have beds, so she has a cactus. 
Now, this woman felt compelled at that point to find out more. And she kind of turned over to this conversation and she said, how does that work? I imagine you have to be very careful. And the other people said, you know, didn't quite get her, her point of view and, and the conversation went on and someone said, did she name her cactus? And they said, yes, he named it Manzanilla or something like that. Now the other woman has reached what we call in communications a crisis. Her understanding is so incompatible with what other people are saying that she had to stop and say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And so we had to back up and, oh, you're talking about pets. And, and so it's a funny story, but it illustrates what happens when communication doesn't go well. A crisis occurs at some point when different people's understanding are just at, uh, at odds with one another, and you have two choices at that point. You can just walk away and say, I'll never understand what's going on here, or you have to stop, back up to a common point, and, and work on restoring understanding, restoring what we'll call... Uh, a few times here now in this message, what's called the shared pool of meaning. So it was funny in this case, but in all, a lot of cases it isn't. A lot of times miscommunication can be tragic. Feelings can be hurt. Objectives confused. Opportunities can be missed. Time wasted. Trust eroded. Confidence diminished. And we have to recognize our responsibility to make our communications as clear and effective as possible. Getting back to Genesis 1, asking the question of who is God speaking to, speaking yes within the Godhead, it's also very likely because we haven't seen any previous indication and there's no place else in Genesis that tells when God created the angels. The angels could have been aware and, and listening to God's declarations. That's very likely. But it, it, it points out again the essential nature of God as a communicator. God speaks. He always speaks. It is his nature. I want to just quickly run through the outline because I'm going to show a lot of Bible verses coming up and we'll lose track of this. I've already talked about being made in God's image God is a communicator. We're going to talk about how God is also a great doer. He's not just a communicator. He, he doesn't just say things. He does things. And then look at our responsibility as communicators also. Communication needs to be honest and accurate. And always remember that it goes two directions. I want to go back to the earlier steps in creation in Genesis. I'm going to... Just read portions of those verses because it illustrates something very important about God and the way he works. Excuse me. In Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1-6, God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water, etc., and it was so. 
Genesis 1-9, God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear, and it was so. Genesis 1-11, God said, let the land produce vegetation, etc., and it was so. Genesis 1.14, God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, etc., and it was so. Genesis 1.20, God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. This is the one case where it doesn't say, and it was so, but we can just look outside and see that it was so. And finally, in Genesis 1.24, God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. The Creator's words and actions are indivisible. What God says, God does. Not as two distinct activities. What God does, he says. God's word is his act. Come on. There's a verse in there somewhere. As we know from Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. God is constantly speaking through everything he has made. And in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. God speaks to us. Thank God through his word and through his Holy Spirit. But even the pagan, even the person without the Bible is without excuse because God's nature is seen in everything he has made. As, as Missy prayed this morning, the rain is an illustration of God's grace, which is poured out for everyone. He's a giving, giving God. His nature is seen in everything he has made. God has spoken. He continues to speak through nature and everything he has created. And this is a very important fact to keep in mind from an apologetic point of view. I'm going to explain something that to me is really cool, but I might lose all of you. I did some research on Wikipedia because this is a subject I'm, I, I wanted to get some facts on. And I found a list of historical figures, people, credited with founding religions or religious philosophies. Or it also includes the people who first wrote down, who first codified older known religious traditions. And what I discovered is that over time, we have a total of 179 distinct religions or religious traditions that have been devised by men. Two of them, just two, were founded more than a thousand years before Christ. That is Judaism, which is attributed to Abraham, and an ancient Egypt religion, and we'll give them that one because we know they were around for a long time. Just two. 
In the next thousand years, from um, 1000 BC to year zero, um, 15 religions were founded that we have records of. From zero to 1000, there were 26, and that includes Christianity and some of the early Christian uh, traditions. Then in the following thousand years, from the year 1000 to 2000, 134, which includes some of the major Christian denominations. And then in the first 10 years of the third millennium, which we are now in, from 2000 to 3000, we have already got two new religions, which means we're on track for about 200 more if Jesus tarries and doesn't come back before that time. Now, the reason this is interesting to me, we have this, exp that's called an exponential progression. Man is getting exponentially more crazy with time. And it's absurd. It is absurd to me when I hear about new religions starting. And I didn't expect these numbers. I expected to find, you know, the 10 or 12 major things. Um, but here's the point I like to consider when I look at this graph. It seems reasonable to me to make the claim that the creator of this universe, his nature does not change over time. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, you guys commit that chart to memory because it's awesome. All right, I'm going to move on. In Hebrews 13, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we know Jesus Christ is God. So God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then it's followed by a very interesting verse. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. There's at least 178 strange teachings that have come along. If God doesn't change, then his intention to reveal himself to mankind doesn't change. It doesn't come and go. It doesn't start or come as a whim or some seasonal affective disorder or something. It's just something that is always in his nature. And given that Christianity sits squarely on the shoulders of Judaism, Christianity is the one faith system whose roots go all the way back to the very first traditions that we've read about in Genesis 1, and that recognizes a God whose attitude toward mankind is unchanged from the very beginning. His means and his methods have adapted over time to meet the condition of man and his progressive revelation of his plan of salvation, but always in keeping with his, what he has always communicated, which is salvation is by his grace through faith. It's always been that way. And the God who shows his nature in all the things he has made, who communicated with Adam and Eve, walking with them in the cool of the evening, who made a covenant with Abraham, 
who spoke through prophets, who spoke to us in human form as the man Jesus, who enlightens our understanding today through the indwelling Holy Spirit, who gave us his word in the scriptures by that same spirit through more than 60 authors spread out over thousands of years. This God always has been and will continue to express himself to his people. And the absurdity about that chart is that there is no reason, no expectation, and no need for any new way for God to communicate who he is to his people. And you see it in every religion. Suddenly there's a new way. Why? Why would the God of the universe need to come up with a new way to communicate? Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings, Hebrews 13.9 tells us. So in our call, in our appointment as, as organizers, as overseers, as authorities somehow over this creation, whatever you want to call it, in order for us to be effective in that role, we have to be good communicators, and that means we have to be godlike. We have to nurture those godlike attributes in us. And I want to point out three ways, three keys to help us avoid the very common pitfalls that we all encounter as humans trying to communicate. Psalm 44 says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. And this book I've put up there is called Crucial Conversations. Great book. It's been around for a long time, multiple editions. If you have something difficult you need to address or talk about with somebody, uh, or you find yourself frequently in such a position, I can highly recommend this. It is not a particularly or specifically Christian book, but it has a lot of truth in it. The authors of this book um, point out that there are three elements that make a conversation crucial. And they are differing, opinion, uh, differing opinions are clearly there, the stakes are high, and emotions are strong. What are some examples? Well, they give... Um, a salary negotiation. You need to go in and talk to your boss about a raise. Stakes are high. Emotions may be strong. And there's always misunderstanding somewhere about, you know, maybe you misunderstood what your job description was. You have to get those things cleared. What about uh, a marketing strategy for a business that's in a very competitive market? Boy, if you get that strategy wrong, that could be the business. It could be people's jobs. Stakes are high and emotions are strong. What about asking a friend to repay a loan? Stakes are high. You don't want to lose a friendship. You don't want to damage that relationship. But emotions can be strong. What about dealing with a rebellious teenager? And what about a church trying to choose the focus for their ministry? Stakes are high. Salvations. And emotions could be strong as well. We often handle such crucial conversations very poorly. A very common way to handle them is avoid them. 
Just avoid it. Just it'll go away. Well, sometimes it doesn't go away. Or we address them head on like two locomotives on the same track going opposite directions. And it's just a crash. And, and the reasons are the reasons we ha tend to react badly to these difficult situations is because, again, emotions are high. Or you've got to that crisis point where you have no choice but to address it, and now adrenaline is flowing. And you've got the fight or flight reflex happening in you. And, uh, or there's time pressure. It has to be addressed. It has to be done now. We've got 30 minutes. Let's fix this problem. Or you just don't have accurate information. I don't know you. I don't know what your history is. I don't understand where you're coming from. And so my information is, is not right. And I, and I make assumptions based on that. The authors of this book say, 20 years of research involving more than 100,000 people has revealed that the key skill, the key skill of effective leaders teammates, parents, loved ones, is the capacity to skillfully address emotionally and politically risky issues. Now, if you want to know how to do that, get the book. I'm not going to talk much more about how. There's a lot of really good guidance in there. But I do want to talk for a little bit about why. Why is it important for us as Christians to number one, try to get to do communication well, and, and number two, to occasionally succeed. The authors again say what typically sets effective communicators apart from the rest of the pack is their ability to avoid what they have come to call the fool's choice. The fool's choice is something you often see when people just look at, I can do this or this. I can ground my kids for the rest of their life or they're going to become drug addicts. That's the fool's choice. There's something in the middle that will work pretty well. I like to call it, um, from a theological point of view, avoiding the devil's lies. Because the devil, through this world system and, and all that the information flowing into us, wants to get us to believe lies, doesn't he? He wants us to believe lies about ourselves. He wants us to believe lies about our family members, lies about our coworkers, and even lies about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And those lies are often the basis for very bad communication habits. When you base a conversation on lies or on a false basis of the intentions and motives of another, what happens is you poison this shared pool of meaning. Picture a conversation, a dialogue as people contributing to a shared pool of understanding or meaning. It can be pure, clean, refreshing water, or it can be full of poison. If you hide information, if you deny feelings, if you distort facts, if you spin a story to favor your personal agenda, you are polluting that shared pool of meaning. And this concept of the shared pool of meetings is from this Crucial Conversations book. When you're honest with yourself and with each other, you increase the shared pool of meeting, and understanding can begin to grow, and, and, and true knowledge, truth, 
can occur between two people. The shared pool of meaning can motivate and enable people to make better choices together. But remember, this free flow of meaning between two people does not just occur with words. You have to look very closely for the unspoken attitudes, feelings, emotions. And yet there are words, and in this day and age, we have so many words coming at us through text, uh, emails, uh, social media posts, and those words... Baby, there it is. Ecclesiastes 6.11. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? Be very careful of the words that you receive out of context or without some context that helps you better understand them. When we talk about the sheer pool of, of, of meaning, the meaning means truth, Truth means there's no hidden agenda, no hidden issues, and then that openness uh, that's required, uh, that there's no unvoiced fear. You have to be able to express your fears, attitudes. There's no expectations and no blame to be assigned. We have many biblical reminders of the importance of our communications being truthful and honest. Psalm 52, 1 through 4. Why do you boast, O evil, of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. And we have to confess that that describes us many times. Deceit and lies come off of our tongues so easily. Proverbs 6, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. I think six out of those seven have a lot to do with just truthfulness, having a true and honest and open communication. Our communication has to be honest. But it also has to be accurate. I don't have a slide, so just ignore that one. That's for the last point. <laughs> um, that story I told you about the apartment with no, where you can't have beds, that's an example of just inaccurate communication. Something got lost in the, in the translation or the accent. Um, and, th and that was, again, funny. But we owe it to one another to make sure we're accurate in all our communications, not just in the critical ones, but in everyday sort of things, stuff that you do all the time. You know, it, there's sort of a tradition or an understanding that Adam and Eve in the garden had the responsibility for naming everything. And I suppose they did. You can't 
have uh, dominion, you can't organize, you can't manage something if you don't have a way to reference it, right? And so we kind of laugh and think of funny stories about how they were naming all the animals. I think they, they got some of them right, you know, that, that they have, I think they did good with rhinoceros, especially considering a group of rhinoceroses is called a crash, that they obviously were watching carefully. I don't think they did such a good job with platypus. I think it was late on a Friday evening, and, and, and Adam says, what do we call this thing? It looks like a cat eating a plate. And Eve said, just make something up. It's getting late, sun's going down, and God's coming by tomorrow. I've got to clean this place up, help me. So, you know, they, we, we have that kind of funny tradition we think about. But they have to. If you're going to talk about things, you have to give it a name. And on this point, I don't go, won't go so far as to pop up a Bible verse and say, thus saith the Lord, you must do this. It's more kind of an opinion or my own personal philosophy of, of ministry and, and even work, taking the time to, to be very careful in, in the words you use and even the, the, the way you label things has generally um, been a way that I've differentiated myself from others at work and, and it's always been a great benefit. Careless communications can sometimes be funny, but more, of, more often it will result in hurt feelings, loss of credibility, and it saps enthusiasm, and it isolates people. People feel on the outside when they get the wrong message. And those are exactly the opposite of what God intended for our communication to do. Matthew 12, 33. Uh, there is supposed to be a slide here, but it got dropped. Um, so I'm going to read it to you. Uh, it makes the importance of accurate communications without the humor. Listen to this. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I think it's pretty clear that what is being discussed there, what Jesus is saying, has to do with our communication. I think a lot of times we read that and we think it's about sinning about doing things bad. But a lot of it, a lot of the bad things we do come out of our mouth. And it's hard work. It's hard work to get this right. It means taking the time and energy to reread that email before you send it, to stop and consider who is going to be reading that announcement before you make it, or how a social media post could be misinterpreted when out of context. Those are the steps necessary to think about, am I communicating accurately? Is everyone who reads this going to get the same message? And I believe that we will rarely act more like the God in whose image we are created than when we strive to be honest and accurate and understood in all of our communications. 
And the third point, finally, is that um, communications is bi-directional. It's a two-way street. Don't ever forget that. As we saw in our data communications model, there must be a receiver. Otherwise, there's no communication. Some of us need to work on our listening skills. And it's very easy to find help. If you just Google listening skills, you'll find lots of good stuff. I did that, and I found an article by um, Diane Schilling, whose name I recognized on a site, the Forbes uh, news site, which I find a lot of good stuff on, so I gravitated right toward that. And it is 10 keys to effective listening. So I'll just very quickly uh, walk you through those, and then, uh, and then we'll wrap up. 10 keys to effective listening. Face the speaker, make eye contact. That also means put aside distractions. Papers, books, cell phones, put all that aside so your attention is 100% given to the person you're speaking with. And sometimes the person you're speaking with will be shy or uncertain or have shame or guilt or other emotions that prevent them from doing this but you give them grace. Excuse the other person and make sure you're the one focused on the conversation. Number two, be attentive but relaxed. Sometimes sitting on opposite sides of a conference table is not a good posture for a conversation. Sometimes you just need to be relaxed, but you need to be there for the person. That's what attentive means. You're there for them ready to serve in some fashion. Number three, keep an open mind. This is a tough one, especially guys. We want to come up with the solution. So the whole time we're listening, we're thinking, I can fix that, I can do that, I can fix that, I can make that. You've got to stop and listen without coming to conclusions and don't finish the other person's sentences even if it's just in your own head. Number four, listen to the words and try to picture what the speaker is saying. When it, you're listening, it's your turn to listen, don't spend that time devising your next argument. Listen to the words coming out of the other person's mouth. Don't interrupt. We, uh, we tend to do this also, again, when we're trying to invent solutions. Oh, I can fix that. Let's just go. You're not paying attention. Um, sometimes the, other, the person you're talking to um, you may be a quick thinker and an agile talker. You have to slow down your pace to give the other person time to formulate what they need to say. Again, we take it upon ourselves to the responsibility to be the effective listener. Wait for a pause before asking questions. You know, just let, let the person speak. When they take a breath or something comes up, then you can say, you know, can you back up to that other point? I, I want to understand better what you were saying. And the seventh point is kind of related to that. Um, you should only ask questions to gain understanding. It's very easy when someone mentions something that you're peripherally interested in to, to go down that path and get off of the main point. So you don't only want to ask questions to stay focused on on what the speaker is saying. Number eight, this is critical. Try to feel what the speaker is feeling. In this article, um, the author wrote, 
to experience empathy, you have to put yourself in the other person's place and allow yourself to feel what it is like to be him or her at that moment. This is not an easy thing to do. It takes energy and concentration, but it is a generous and helpful thing to do, and it facilitates communication like nothing else. Trying to understand the feeling that the person is expressing is a key step to listening. Finally, give feedback. You know, you can react to a, something they've just said, like, wow, that must have made you feel horrible. Or, you know, I can understand why you'd, why you'd feel that way. Or just saying, uh-huh, okay, I understand. Just some feedback so they know you're hearing the words. Sometimes you have to stop and repeat in your own words what's been said. That's a very strong way of reinforcing the fact that you are actually paying attention. And finally, uh, pay attention to the nonverbal cues. 75% of what we communicate in face-to-face -face communications is not words. We can glean a lot of information from the tone of voice, the, the, the rhythm, the, the of the way someone is speaking. And those are things that you don't have in emails or text messages. And so text and emails, you're losing 75% of what person, a person really wants to communicate. Don't put too much stock. Don't base decisions on how you interpret an email or a text. Go talk to the person face to face or even on the phone. At least then you have tone of voice and you can get a more, better feel for what's going on. But once again, even in this area of listening, our best model is God himself. He is a listener. He hears our cries. I didn't include any of the examples from Psalms because there are dozens and dozens of them over and over again. Um, Dave, um, David cries out, God, hear my cry. You heard me in my pain. But he does say this. In Psalm 116, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. God is a good listener. He hears you when you speak. He does not despise your honest lament or complaint. He is not offended by your fears or even your anger. You can yell at God. He does resist the proud. Be careful when you come before him. But he doesn't resist the sorrowful and the contrite of heart. Genesis shows us that God created us to be with him to possess the attributes that allow us to commune with him. From the very beginning, he has communicated with us. He has never stopped. And one day, those who know him will communicate with him face to face. As we read in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I look forward to that day of having get sin 
and this fallen nature out of the way in my communications with God. Let's pray. Almighty God, uh, we are fearfully and wondrously made. We are uniquely made of all your creation because we have been made to have fellowship with you. And you have taken on the task. You have owned the responsibility to bring us to that place where we can once again, just as Adam and Eve had fellowship with you, walk in the cool of the evening and see you face to face. We look forward to that day. We thank you for your word, your word which is your action, your word which is your power and always goes forth and accomplishes what you intend. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.